Good morning. My name is Karen. The Old Testament reading is found in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant with me, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. No, this is the covenant that I will make with my people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my instructions within them, engrave them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will no longer need to teach each other to say, Know the Lord, because they will know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wrongdoings and never again remember their sins. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maggie. The New Testament reading is found in Philippians 3, 7 to 14. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of, of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Hi, good morning. My name is Cor. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John 17, 1 to 3. When Jesus finished saying these things, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son so that the son can glorify you. You gave him authority over everyone so that he could give eternal life to everyone you gave him. This is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. The Gospel of the Lord. Amen. Remain standing as we pray. Jesus, we do pray that by your spirit you would awaken us this morning. Awaken us to you. Bring us beyond the place of knowledge and learning and information and bring us to the place of union and communion with you. Transform us, we pray, as we hear your word. We welcome the work of the Holy Spirit even now. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. Baptism Sunday is always such a special time. We're so thrilled. All of you that are here that got baptized today, what an amazing thing. Next round will probably be sometime in the spring after Easter. So uh, if you missed it this time around, it's okay. There'll be more chances, and we'll have uh, announcements about that when the time comes. Uh, Many of you know, my wife and I have four kids. We have three girls and one boy, and Jonas is our third in the lineup of four kids. And when he was about three years old or so, we began to put him in, you know, he's got some 
athletic genes in him that he gets not really from me but other places in the family tree and uh, when he was three we put him in like some very early kind of soccer buddies kick around the ball run around that sort of stuff but then by the time he was four uh, we put him in uh, rec league soccer and he began to kind of um, really catch on to that and I began coaching uh, his team right around that time and ended up coaching him in rec league for four years which is eight seasons and uh, eight games a season, 64 uh, total. I believe our record was 62, one and one. And uh, uh, over those four years, but you see, what I discovered is not every parent kept score. And that there were some parents who thought that the objective of putting your kid in soccer was to have fun. And I just wanted to say, listen, if you want them to have fun, let him run around. Let him do whatever you want. But this is organized sports. <laughs> the objective is to win. And, <laughs> and when you win, you have fun. It's very simple. It's very simple. And it, and it, it all, it, you know, we were never too intense. They were kids. It's all fun. Uh, now, you know, Jonas is almost 10. He's, he's playing at a top uh, club team, and I can't coach anymore. And when I try to give instructions, the coach tells me to be quiet, you know. But several of those boys from that team are now on different ones of these top club teams with pride. And so it's a really, it's a really fun thing. But I, 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 as I reflected on it, I thought, you know, there's a difference between knowing the objective and knowing the outcome. You can know the objective and not know the outcome, or you can think the outcome is actually the objective. Listen, the outcome of playing well together as a team is that you will have fun, but the objective is to actually learn how to play the game, right? And so in a similar way, I think in life we kind of get confused with the results of something versus the objective of the thing. And so when it comes to the Christian life, the question is, what is the objective? What's the purpose here? What's the goal, if you will, of the Christian life. Um, maybe you've grown up hearing some things about Christianity, maybe even the way that you uh, came to put your faith in Jesus was because you thought the objective was to escape hell and get to heaven. And so you're like, okay, the goal here is to not go to that other place. And so I'm gonna say yes to Jesus, I'll do whatever else, but that's the goal. And the problem is whenever someone brings up something else, they're like, well, are you connected in a meal group? And you're like, is that required for heaven? <laughs> and they're like, no, it's not. And you're like, I'm not going. You know, like, have you considered serving in kids ministry? Is that required for heaven? No, it's not. Uh, no, thank you. God bless someone else. Because in your mind, the objective is eternal salvation and heaven. And so nothing else really matters. Or maybe you've come from a different kind of background where you've kind of thought that the objective is really improved behavior. And so then someone says, well, you know, are you, um, are, are you becoming a good person? And you're like, no, my life's kind of a mess. I've made some bad choices, but I'm thinking about going back to church. Now listen, some of you, maybe you're here precisely for that reason. You kind of did your thing in the early part of your 20s, whatever, and then now maybe you find yourself with a spouse, maybe with a child, and you're like, shoot, we got to figure out this life stuff. Like, let's just figure out how to like get our lives together. That's a perfectly okay reason. I just want to tell you that actually the goal of the Christian life is much better than that. The goal of the Christian life is much better than an escape to heaven, and it's much better than moral performance and improved behavior. 
It's much better than that. We're in a series to, uh, this fall through the book of Philippians, and Philippians is actually a letter. So if you've seen a Bible, if you've got your Bibles, there's chapters and verses and all of that. Initially, this letter didn't have any of those divisions. It was just a letter. And Paul was writing to a group of Christians in a city called Philippi, uh, a church that he had helped plant back uh, in Acts 16. You kind of hear the story of how this church began, and a woman named Lydia was an influential leader in that church and helping that congregation begin. And some years have, have passed now, and Paul finds himself in prison. And the people in Philippi are probably thinking, man, Paul, here you go again, because he was in prison in Philippi, you know. And then now here he is probably in prison in Ephesus, possibly in Rome. We don't know for sure. But he's writing letters now to this congregation in Philippi. And he's checking in on them. And he's generally pleased with them. And so our series, actually, we've been able to call our series Complete Joy. Because Paul finds joy in knowing the stories of these Christians. And he finds joy in their partnership with him in the gospel. And he's pointed them to Jesus. There's a beautiful hymn that's there in Philippians 2 about the death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. But now he comes to what I think is the living heartbeat of his letter. This is the centerpiece of his letter. This is where Paul says, okay, look, we've talked about a lot of things. I've told you to look at Timothy and Epaphroditus. I've told you to live your life this way. I've told you to help me in the spread of the gospel. But listen, if you miss everything else, don't miss this. The Christian life is about knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus. And so our title for today of our reflection from the scriptures is knowing Jesus. And I want to say three things to you about what it means to know Jesus. And the first is this, knowing Jesus is the prize. Knowing Jesus is the thing that pulls you forward. Knowing Jesus is the prize that fuels your pursuits that keeps you running. Listen to the verse right here in verse 7. We read this part a couple weeks ago. Paul says, these, these things were my assets. And he's listed kind of his national identity, his ethnic identity, his moral perfection or performance. And he says, these things were my assets, but I wrote them off as a loss for the sake of Christ. And now in verse 8 he says, but even beyond that, I consider everything a loss. Isn't that amazing? Paul's like, look, even the things I didn't list, It's all a loss in comparison with the superior value. I love that translation, superior value. Understand that Paul is not saying that actually these things are not valuable. He's just saying, I found the thing of superior value. I found something of greater value. Oftentimes, we will not change anything about our lives until we're convinced that we've found something of superior value. You never reprioritize until you realize, actually, this is more valuable than this. And this is why the person who comes to the middle of their life and they realize, wait a minute, my kids are gone and I've been working this whole time. Wait a second, I've only got a couple years left with them in the home. What's the thing of superior value? And then you reprioritize. Paul says, I've I've discovered the thing of superior value. Superior value value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord I have lost everything for him and what I lost I think of as sewer trash that I might gain Christ there's been a lot of uh, discussion among commentators about how to translate that word sewer trash is very polite (laughs) there are other words that could convey the strength of what Paul's saying he's saying look you don't understand when it comes to Jesus it he makes everything else pale in comparison he makes it a stench in comparison nothing could compare and then verse 12 it's not that I've already reached this goal 
or have already been perfected, but I pursue it that I may grab hold of it because Christ grabbed hold of me just for this purpose. You know, there's this great mystery in the Christian life where we say, is it about our pursuit or is it about God's pursuit? And the answer is, it's about God's pursuit that somehow triggers and empowers our pursuit. And so, yes. And Paul says, I'm chasing this. But actually, it was him who chased me first. It was Christ who took hold of me first. It was, in the words of that old preacher, like the hound of heaven who tracked me down. And Paul knows he was literally knocked off his horse by a bright and shining light. And he's like, Christ Jesus took a hold of me. And he's like, but you know what? Now that means I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to take a hold of him, knowing him. Brothers and sisters, I myself don't think I've reached it. But I do this one thing. I forget about the things behind me and reach for the things ahead of me. Look, listen, if the Christian life is about moral improvement, then we could grade ourselves. And we could say, well, it's been 10 years. I have now passed six levels of, of Christian living. I have achieved expert status. Paul's like, church in Philippi, I'm near the end of my life. I just want you to know, if this thing's about knowing Jesus, we never fully arrive there. Because Jesus is so gloriously rich. There's so much to knowing him. We're going to spend all eternity knowing him. And Paul's like, I, I, I've not attained to that. I'm not there. We're not ranking. We're just pursuing. We're just running. And then he says in verse 14, the goal I pursue is the prize of God's upward call in Christ Jesus. Knowing Jesus is the prize. But the value of the prize determines the vigor of your pursuit. The value of the prize determines the vigor of your pursuit. So if you think that this is what God is offering us, you'll say, oh, well, heaven, pretty good. I mean, I got my passport stamped for heaven. What else do I need? I'm good, right? Eh. But if you know, listen, the value is knowing him. You're like, well, I want to know that. I want to give my life in that pursuit. I want to spend myself knowing him. When I was um, uh, a young undergrad, I, I, we, you know, I'd moved back to America from Malaysia. We'd lived there with, my fam with our family in my middle school years, and then I finished up my high school in Malaysia and then came back to the States on my own to go to college. And my older sister had kind of set the bar pretty high in terms of graduating early and GPA and all this stuff. And so I kind of thought, yeah, well, I'll do the same thing. You know, I'll finish in three years. I'll get a 4.0. And so my first couple years of undergrad at, at Oral Roberts University, I was doing everything. I mean, I was going above and beyond. I was doing extra credit. I didn't have a car. I didn't have a TV. So people were going out on Friday nights. I was reading like the humanities textbook. <laughs> and people were like, what are you doing? Like, Nobody reads that. This is a general ed class. And I was like, I'm reading the textbook. I'm getting an A in this class. And I would do all of the stuff. And I was like, we've got 200 pages of reading we're supposed to do by Monday. And everyone's like, we don't really have to do that. Just watch this Chris Farley movie. And I was like, that's the stupidest movie I've ever heard of. I'm going to read my humanities textbook. Thank you very much. And so I did. I had, I had a great GPA and was making A's and was working hard. And then everything began to change my junior year. My junior year, I was actually starting to take more and more of the classes in my major, theological, historical studies, and, and I had a music minor, and I started to kind of, my grades started to drop a little bit. I, I was taking Greek, either my junior or senior year, I took Greek, and got a B in Greek, and I was like, yeah, it's fine, it's no big deal. 
And then I had like music seminar, which should be the easiest class to get an A in because music seminar, you just got to attend a few recitals, maybe see a concert. And I was like not even going to that. I got a C in music seminar. Now the class is only worth a half a credit. So I, you know, I calculated risk there. <laughs> you see what happened my junior year was I met this girl. <laughs> and her name was Holly. And when I met Holly, I thought, I have found something of superior value <laughs> to my humanities textbooks. <laughs> and so I thought, I, I'm not going to study. I'm going to go out. I'm going to make a phone call. And we're going to do that, you know, and all of this stuff. And, and it was a pursuit. Someday we'll tell you the up and down, back and forth, break up, on again, off again, a couple of years that we had. It was a pursuit. But the value of the prize determined the vigor of my pursuits. So that is a, you know, there you go. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how to segue from that. Okay, back to Paul. Verse 8. And Paul says at the tail end of verse 8, he says, Look, but I've lost everything for him. But what I lost, I think of as sewer trash so that I might gain Christ and be found in him. And then skip down to verse 10. The righteousness that I have comes from knowing Christ the power of his resurrection, the participation in his sufferings. It includes being conformed in his death. The verse earlier, Paul says that I might gain Christ. And then he says, and be found in him. In case we're wondering, Paul, what does it mean to gain Christ? He says it means to be found in him. And then this word, to know him, that I might know him. This is an intimate word. This is a word of experiential knowing. This is not a word that says, yeah, I've read about this. This is a word that shows us personal acquaintance, not distant knowledge. And then he says, I'm sharing in his sufferings. Listen, we use this English word sharing in two very different ways. If your name is John and you met someone today whose name is John, you'd say we share the same name. But if you're in the military and you were deployed together in Afghanistan or Iraq or one of those places that were really difficult during a combat situation, you would come back from that and you'd say, we had totally different upbringings. We had totally different parts of the country. But man, we shared an experience of suffering together. There's, it, it's very different. You can share a surface level feature or you can share a deep experience. Paul says, I don't just want to be called by the name of Christ. I, just, I don't want to just be a person who shares his name. I want to share in his experience. I want to be that close. I want to share in. And so the second thing we see from this text is that knowing Jesus is personal. Knowing Jesus is personal. It's not just mental or cognitive or intellectual. It's not just propositional and mental agreement to a series of statements about Jesus. And you say, yes, yes, I believe in that. Yes, yes, Jesus, one, one God, you know, from the Father, one Lord. Yes, 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 yes. Paul says, I want something more for you. I want you to actually know him. It's difficult to talk about this stuff. It's difficult to really paints a picture of what this could look like to let your life be so intimately be bound up with Christ. And I want to offer to you a, a couple of words of invitation and maybe words of caution. Some of you maybe grew up in a, in a mode of knowing Jesus that was very um, mostly based on kind of your knowledge and your understanding. That is beautiful and legitimate. 
That it's absolutely one of the ways we love God with our minds and to know him and to understand and to study. But maybe for you an invitation is that the Holy Spirit says, and I kind of want you to know Jesus in a way that actually transcends understanding that goes beyond what, what you can sort of codify and write down. And so maybe for you, the, just the right thing to do is to come on Wednesday night to first Wednesday, not this week, but next week, and, and spend 90 minutes in a room with other charismatic worshipers praying and singing, and you're like, what is going on here? I don't even know how to sing the words. And this. That may be just the right thing to unlock a different mode of knowing Jesus. Others of you, you're like me, you've grown up kind of around music and emotion. I mean, I, I, as a kid, would have many, many, many powerful times of crying and praying and singing and kneeling and bowing and laying out and just saying, oh, yes, Lord, I want to know you. For me, what's enriched me in, in the last 10, 15 years of my walk with Jesus has been to discover the contemplative tradition, to understand that you can sit silently in a beautiful old church or cathedral and become aware of the same Holy Spirit. And we didn't need the volume turned up to 11. Thank God. <laughs> These ears aren't what they used to be. Oh, just kidding. You can sit in silence. I've learned about the importance of Sabbath and solitude. I've learned about the, the, the beauty of praying the Psalms. Sometimes it's beautiful to pray the words that are flowing from your heart, but sometimes when the well feels dry, it's good to pick up a prayer book of the Psalms and say, Lord, I'm just going to pray these words today. And sometimes those become wells for us. Here's the point. The Holy Spirit is extremely creative, and he wants to communicate the presence of the risen Christ to us to you and to me. And so whatever the mode is of knowing him, whatever that looks like in your singing, in your praying, in your um, walk with Jesus, allow that to open up new places in your heart. Maybe you say, well, I, I just, this has been so dry. This has been so crusty. I'm just doing that. Okay, take a, take a little bit of a, a pause from that and go to a different well here. Because you know what? All of these wells still tap into the one river. And the river is the river of his spirit, of his presence. And so Paul wants us to, but the point is, don't stay at a distance with Jesus. You know, you can be in a room that's very emotional, or you could be in a room that is very quiet, and in both settings, you could be keeping Jesus at arm's length. You could be saying, uh, I, don't, I don't really know, I just want to sort of sing songs about you. I don't know that I want to actually be near to you. And some of you have heard me tell this story, but... Maybe this is an illustration that would help. In the mid-1800s, there was a French acrobat named Jean-Francois Gravelet. No idea if that's how you pronounce his name. And he went by Charles Blondine. And in 1858, Charles Blondine decided that he was going to walk on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And he decided that he was going to do this. And they said, you're crazy. And he said, no. And he's got this little hemp rope. And he had this wooden stick that he used to kind of balance himself. And he walked. And everyone was holding their breath, kind of like you are right now. And he walked all the way to the end. And he made it. <laughs> and then after. And then they thought, OK, Blondine, like, that's enough. And he said, no, no, no I'm going to do it again. And he came back the other way. And they're like, you're crazy. Over the course of the next few decades, Blondine walked on a tightrope across Niagara Falls 300 times. Absolutely insane. As he got more and more confident, 
He would stop halfway and like lower a bottle of wine to the mate of the mist. You know, that, that boat that takes tourists around the inside of the, 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 the Niagara Falls. And then he would strap this gigantic camera. Remember, 1800s, gigantic camera. He would strap it to the, his back and he would walk across and stop and take pictures. I don't know, maybe a selfie. Maybe you couldn't do that with those big cameras. Uh, and then he would continue... And one day, Blondine said, you know what? It's time for me to carry a human being on my back across Niagara Falls. And he said, any volunteers? <laughs> Nobody volunteers. It's interesting, isn't it? Because before he said that, they were all cheering him on. Like, Blondine, we believe in you. Blondine, you're the best. And then he's like, okay, I am the best. You want to hop on my back? And they're like, oh. And so finally, a man named Harry Colcord, his manager, climbed on his back. And I don't know if Colcord had much of a choice because he was his manager. <laughs> and Blondine said, okay, Harry, when we get on this rope, you are no longer Colcord, you are Blondine. And he said, if you try to move on your own, we will both die. And he said, I'm going to move and you're going to move with me. And if I go to the left, you go to the left. If I go to the right, you go to the right. If I take a step, you take a step. There is no more call cord. There is only Blondine. And that reminds me of Paul's words in Galatians 2 where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet it is no longer I who live. The life I live in the flesh is no longer me, but by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, it's one thing to come to church and be like, Jesus, woo, you're the best, Jesus, you're awesome. And he's like, okay, hop on. And we're like, mm, I don't know. I don't know. Jesus, you're the best, Jesus, you can do it. He's like, I know, and I want you to cling to me. We're like, mm-mm. But I believe that you can do it. And Jesus is like, faith is not just a mental agreement that God is or that God can. Faith is the joining of your life with Christ in allegiance and obedience, in union and communion with Jesus. That's what faith is. Knowing Jesus is personal. Philippians 3 verse 9. Paul says, in Christ I have a righteousness that is not my own. And that does not come from the law, but rather from the faithfulness of Christ. I love this translation because it highlights for us his faithfulness that saves us. It is the righteousness of God that is based on faith. The righteousness that I have comes from knowing Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the participation in his sufferings. It includes being conformed to his death. And then verse 11 so that I may perhaps reach the goal of the resurrection of the dead, so that I can come to the end of this. The final thing we see from this text is that knowing Jesus is powerful. It's powerful. Paul wants the Philippian Christians to know that the result of knowing Jesus is it will produce in you righteousness now and resurrection later. That's what it will produce. It will produce righteousness now and resurrection later. This is why it's important for us not to get confused with objectives and outcomes. Absolutely one of the results of knowing Jesus is that your life will be changed. Righteousness will begin to bear, take root and bear fruit inside of you. Absolutely. It comes from Jesus. 
and it's going to produce fruit. And absolutely one of the final hopes, it's actually much better than heaven, it's called resurrection and new creation. Yes, that is one of those, but those are outcomes and results. But the beating heart of the Christian life is knowing Jesus. That's it. That's the beating heart of life, of this Christian life. It's knowing Jesus. It's easy for us to hear this scripture and this text being taught and say, man, that's, yes, I want that. But it's important for us sometimes to imagine what these words mean for others who really do experience great loss in order to know Jesus, like Paul did. When we announced a few weeks ago that we were doing a series on Philippians, Rahil Alam came up to me and said, I'm so excited that you're doing this series on Philippians, he said, my life verse is in Philippians 3. I said, no kidding. He said, this is a verse that was a key verse for me when I converted from Islam to Christianity as a college undergrad. And I said, Rahil, you've got to share this story with me. So he wrote it up. And I said, is this the kind of, like, can we share? He said, please share this with the church. And so we went back and forth this week on some of these details. And I want you to hear Rahil's story. Rahil's family is originally from Pakistan. And they are Muslims. And Rahil came to faith in Jesus at Baylor University, I think maybe your freshman year or sophomore year, somewhere around their first two years. And this is what Rahil wrote. He said he was struggling if, when, and how, I was struggling if, when, and how to tell my parents that I wasn't a Muslim anymore and that I was choosing to follow Jesus. To be frank, I really didn't want to tell them. I was afraid of their response, being disowned, being abandoned, ostracized, bringing shame upon my dad and family. The litany of excuses knew no end. Until that very moment, I decided that I needed to follow Jesus. And so it was the fall of my second year at Baylor, and every excuse I could muster disappeared the moment I read Philippians 3, 7 through 11, our very text this morning. He read Philippians 3, 7 through 11, and all of his excuses disappeared. And in his email to me, Rahil quoted the text again. And he says, What struck me and convicted me was that Paul, imprisoned, rejected by family, could still proclaim that everything is a loss compared to knowing Jesus. Not only that, but all he had Every relationship, every victory is trash in the light of knowing Jesus. And Rahil says he began to think about his own life. And he said, all the things I held, being a good son, my college fully paid for, having family, keeping the honor of my father, all of that was rubbish compared to the worth that I had been given in Jesus. I wanted to be conformed to his death, to forsake everything. I eventually settled on telling my family over Christmas so that it was face-to-face -face and I could explain more to them rather than over the phone. If I was going to proclaim Jesus and reject Islam to my family, it had to be done in person. And so what did Rahil do before? Right before I told them, I read Philippians 3, 7 through 11 again and went on my way. As expected, I was disowned, told to get out of the house, that I was no longer my dad's son. I don't even think I felt the loss at the time. I didn't see it as a loss. I didn't really lose anything of value. 
But it took a few months. And then the pain hit, and I mourned the loss. But even then, I knew I wasn't rejected. I was accepted and adopted into a new family. I went back to Baylor and got baptized on my birthday months later, recited Philippians 3, 7 through 11, right before, in front of the church. And after the baptism, eight people came up to me and said, you can be part of our family. I didn't lose, I gained. Maybe the lesson is the things we value and think give us worth and the boasts we can make and the accomplishments we've had, while good, are actually rubbish in the light of Christ. And the true aim is to be conformed into Christ's image, sufferings, victories, all of it. Last September, I had the privilege of officiating Raheel and Brooks' wedding and Rahil's father was there. Family was there. Bridges are being repaired. That this man's faith and faithfulness is a living picture of the text that we read today. It's Baptism Sunday. It's the Sunday where we don't just make declarations to God, but we remember our union with Christ into death and into resurrection. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? My heart for you is to be able to cling to Jesus, not because you're a person of great faith, but because you've got nothing on your own. You say, I, I've got nowhere else, no one else to cling to. I've got no righteousness on my own. I've got no, nothing to boast of on my own. I'm going to cling to Jesus and Jesus says, come on, hop on my back, cling to me. I will carry you. I will be your righteousness and your resurrection. I will bring you to the end. But what I want above all else is for you to know me. Friends, this life is going to take a lot of different twists and turns. We're not promised to be exempt from hardship. We're not promised smooth sailing. We're not promised easy living. But we are promised that we have the greatest treasure of all, knowing Jesus. If you pursue one thing, pursue him by the grace of God. Let's get ready to come to the table this morning.